and mighty God. Amen? Amen. A righteous God and a Savior. There is no God like unto our God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who saves us by the sacrifice of His Son, who regenerates us and redeems us, and gifts us and glorifies us and sanctifies us by His Holy Spirit, and who will one day take us into His very presence as His sons and daughters. Amen? We have a great and a mighty God. A couple quick things before I dive into this morning's message in Hebrews. If you want to find your way there as I'm talking, that's fine. Uh, First of all, if you are a newcomer, and by newcomer, I do not mean somebody whose uh, first Sunday is today, although you're certainly welcome to, welcome to join us at any time. Um, but if you are new to the church in the last six months, uh, and you would like to have pizza with Pastor Stephen and me, and, uh, and some other folks who are new, you are welcome to do that today. Uh, we're going to order some pizzas and sit in that cafe over there and eat pizza and talk and laugh, and uh, you can ask us whatever questions you want, and we will give you the absolute truth to those, to those questions, okay? We don't have anything to hide. There are no deep, dark secrets in this church, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and we would love to help you to connect with us as well as to... Um, help you find a place in this body of believers where you fit. Uh, we know that we have a place for you. We just want to help you find where that is uh, and, uh, and to help you connect with that. So uh, please stay. Please, uh, please make plans to, um, uh, to not cook today, but to eat pizza on us and to uh, enjoy that time with us. Uh, Also, if you um, are someone who is giving to our church, uh, thank God for you, we we do. Uh, We want to also encourage you to pick up your tax statement from Eric Riggins, if you have not done so. Uh, It'll save us a little bit of postage if you pick it up at church rather than having us mail it to you, Um, which, you know, who wants to spend money on postage, right? Not us. So anyway, uh, if you would, uh, would see Eric, if you haven't picked your tax statement up and you've given in the last year, we'll get those to you. Uh, one of the other things I want to do, um, this last week we had our first kind of organizational meeting for those who were going to be in leadership training and development with me. Um, and if you are still interested in that, we still have some space available for that. We have... Uh, some men who are going to join us, and some women who are going to join us in that effort. Um, I can get you a syllabus, giving you every assignment you will have to do from sharing the gospel with someone else, a couple of people actually, one per year is what we ask of you, Uh, as well as uh, all the reading assignments and all of the writing uh, that you will do, and uh, the opportunities to do some basic teaching that will be yours, and all of that kind of thing. I can get you all of that detail. The first thing you need to do, though, if you're going to be in this, is let me know you want to be in it, and then you need to buy a copy of this book. Uh, It's called Bible Doctrine. It's by a guy named Wayne Grudem, former chair of the theology department at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is 
at Evangelical Free Church Seminary. Uh, read the first three chapters, answer all the questions at the end of each chapter. Uh, and uh, we will have our next meeting in February. We meet once a month for three hours. Two hours of instruction from yours truly, and then an hour with your small group. And then you'd have one more meeting with your group, uh, not with me, um, but, but with your group per month for accountability, mutual encouragement, that kind of thing. So uh, anyway, that's going to be an exciting thing. Uh, I will not apologize for the fact that it will be hard. Uh, and it, but if you want to do it, if you're courageous enough and have enough time in your schedule to make it, make it happen, you will grow like crazy if you go through this with us. So encourage you to do that. Also, uh, yesterday got some hard news on John McCall. And uh, uh, found out that John has stage 4 gastrointestinal cancer. And so we want to bring John up and lay hands on him and pray over him. So, uh, John, uh, and, and then if you're an elder or a pastor or a deacon here, or a deaconess, if you would come on down. Uh, we're going to lay hands on John. Come on up. Come on up. Um, and we'll lay hands on you and pray, pray over you, okay? Uh, here, you can turn around and face everybody. They want to see your shining face. All right. All right. God, our Heavenly Father, we lift up John, our brother, before you because we have hope. We have hope uh, not in ourselves or in medical technology or in, uh, in anything that we humanly can devise, Father, but because... We put our hope in the maker of soul and body, the creator of the ends of the earth, who declares the end from the beginning, who knows all purposes and all ends and all outcomes, and who has a glorious plan for each of us that we will one day stand before you and be united with you in fellowship forever and ever. Father, we lift up John and we pray for his healing. We pray that your healing hands would be on his body, that you would restore him to full health, that you would kill this cancer, and that you would uh, give him many long years yet to serve the Lord among your people and to, uh, to bring the, the kind of joy and uh, encouragement that he brings to our body here. Uh, Father, we trust him to your will and your plan, knowing that your plans for us are always good because you love us. But we pray for his healing, and we pray that you would grant it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, brother. Well, be lifting John up. Be lifting John up. Do pray for him. And pray for Judy as well. Uh, this is, they're going to enter some hard days and uh, months to come. Uh, in fact, let's just pray again. God, our Heavenly Father, we do trust ourselves to you. In whatever comes. Because we know that 
by the grace of God, we have overcome this life and the grave and sin and death. Not because we are so amazing and wonderful, but because Christ's salvation is that magnificent. And Father, we pray for your encouragement, and we pray your help on John and Judy and their family, and on each of us here this morning. May we worship you well together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are back in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we'll take a little break next week. But this, this morning we are back in Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to want to just look at some amazing, encouraging truth that is meant to make us fearless people. And so I want to read with you verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, uh, at least to begin with here. And let's, let's hear what God's Word has to say. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through, who, through faith, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Didn't read that very well, but those are great verses. To deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You know what the power of death that the devil holds is? It's not the ability to put us to death. God alone determines the length of each person's life, and Satan cannot take life without God's express permission. I think the power of death that Satan holds is to remind us that death is coming and the fact that unless we are redeemed, we are not ready for it. As I read these verses this week, I was reminded of a movie. I like movies, or at least some movies. Um, some movies are awful. Uh, but some movies are, are, are pretty good, and some are not that good, but they have interesting stuff that happens in them. And one of those movies that's not that good of a movie, but it's got some interesting stuff that happens, is Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Do you remember this? Remember this movie? Uh, it's got a, it's got a, one of the characters, it's a forgettable movie as a whole, but, but it's got a character in it that is absolutely fascinating named Davy Jones, remember? And Davy looks like a character out of H.P. Lovecraft, you know, he's got tentacles all down his face, he's got claws for one of his hands, you know, and whenever there's a shipwreck, Davy Jones comes clonking up onto the ruins of the ship, and he asks them this question. Do you remember? He whispers to the dying man, Do you fear death? Do you fear that dark abyss? All your deeds laid bare, all your sins punished, I can offer you an escape. And it's a diabolical offer. Because death is coming either way. It's just that he tells them that if they go with him, they can delay death 
But he doesn't tell them that in the meantime, there'll be a slave to him aboard his boat, the Flying Dutchman, right? Fascinating scene. And what's interesting about that movie and that scene is that in some ways, it encapsulates some rich biblical truth. You know, Disney's not in this to to teach the Bible. They're in it to make money, right? But at the same time, there's some biblical truth that is encapsulated there. And whether you know it or not, you and I, according to the Bible, are born sinners, which means that according to the Bible, you and I are born spiritually dead. We are not sick. We are not weakened. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, according to the Scriptures. And spiritually speaking, we are, according to the Scriptures, dead man walking, dead woman walking. That though we appear to have life, and though we appear to be uh, fully functional, or at least mostly functional adults and so forth, or young people, wherever the category you fit into is, though we appear to be alive and functioning in reality, underneath the appearance that we give off, we are in fact dead. And in this world, ruled by the devil, we are offered all kinds of things to make us forget that judgment day is coming, And all our deeds will be laid bare. And unless we are redeemed, all our sins will be punished. And we rightly fear death. We are born innately with a fear of death as sinners. Because we know what awaits us on the other side of death. And it is not like the poet said, mistakenly, that good night that we go into, is it? It's dark, and it's foreboding because we know that what awaits us on the other side is a holy God who does punish sin and rebellion against Him. But in the meantime, the devil loves to distract and to, um, and to encourage us in our denial that death is coming, and to keep all of that reality stuffed down the memory hole as far as possible. Why does a woman Botox her face? I don't know either, okay? <laughs> but, but I'll tell you why they do it, okay? Women that do that, okay? I mean, whoever thought, that, thought this was a good idea, right? They're going to take something that is absolutely toxic, that in fact, if you get too much of it, will put you to death. And we're going to inject it into the muscles in your face. Oh, okay. So tell me when the good part starts, right? Let's see, needles, poison, my face. Uh, it still sounds like a bad idea, <laughs> right? But women do that, some of them, some men too, incidentally, to hold off for just a little while longer, the reality that they are dying and their youth is passing away. Why does a man in midlife get hair plugs and a sports car 
and one of those, you know, gold chains, right? You can comb those eight greasy hairs over the bald spot, right? Why does he do that, okay? Why does he trade in his, his, the wife of his youth on his 27-year-old secretary? Why does he do that? Because death is coming, and he knows. And he knows his youth is, and his vitality is passing away. And he wants to hold on to, as Bruce Springsteen sang, his glory days for a little while longer, right? People live in denial, and they escape to philosophical systems that tell them there is no death, there is no hell, there is no judgment, that God isn't there on the other side of the curtain. People get drunk, people get high, people have one-night stands and build business empires that bear their names, and people run for office, and people get wrapped up in television shows, and people pursue all kinds of hobbies and distractions and things. And at the bottom of all of that stuff, all of that flurry of activity, is this reality that they are living as slaves to Satan because they fear death, and death is coming. And the hoofbeats of the pale horse come nearer and nearer and nearer and nearer every day. And they know they can't hold it off forever. And Satan doesn't really care which way they try to deny reality that they know in their bones to be true. As long as they remain captive to sin, and as long as he can see them put to death for it, because he himself will one day be put to death for his rebellion and sin. And misery loves company, and he is the most miserable creature in the universe. And he wants as much company as he can. That's the downside of these verses. Here's the upside. Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus came taking on a body of flesh and blood. Why? Verse 14, because we have flesh and blood. And Jesus came to die as our substitute, to die our death for us, that he might take away the devil's power from over us so that we no longer need to fear death. We need no longer dread what awaits us on the other side. And because of Christ, we aren't anticipating punishment for our sins, but final cleansing from them. Amen? We are not looking at Judgment Day in fear and dread, going, all my sins will be punished and all my deeds laid bare. I can say, no, all my sins All my works were laid on Christ on Calvary, and he has therefore taken away from me the fear of death and my captivity to sin and to Satan and to the fear of death. Amen? We will not 
because of Christ meet God as judge, but God as Father, and we will go home for the first time. And we will experience death not as doom, but as a door into the presence of Almighty God. And we will enter into the presence of God our Father and be with Christ our brother through the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of Christ, Satan is disarmed and rendered powerless over us both now and forever. Amen. And in verse 16 and 17, you see a little more detail as to how Jesus accomplished this. It happened by his incarnation and his propitiation. And those are big words, and I want to read you the text, and then I'll explain what they mean. Okay? So, let's read verse 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, I want to look at verse 16 for a second. I don't want, to, don't you, want you to miss this. Who are the children of Abraham that Jesus helps? Well, since this is written to a Jewish congregation of believers in Christ... Certainly it applies to them in every way. They are both physical descendants of Abraham as well as spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith in the same God, making the same promises to them that God made to Abraham and the Redeemer who would come through Abraham's line. But it also, remember this, that going all the way back to the garden, when was the first promise of salvation made? Easy. Chapter 3, verse 15, when the first sin was committed, then the promise of redemption was first given. As soon as man fell into sin and needed redemption, God is right there with the plan of salvation, offering it to them and saying to not just the children of Abraham, who weren't even a thought at this point, but to the children of Adam and Eve, that the Redeemer was going to come for them, for the world. And that in order to, and then as, as, as God's revelation unfolded and we began to understand how the Redeemer would come and through whom it would come, that it would come through the line of Abraham, the descendant of Noah, through, the, through his son Shem, that then it would come not just through Abraham, but it would come through Isaac. And not just through Isaac, but through Jacob. And not just through Jacob, but through the tribe of Judah. And not just through any family in Judah, but through Jesse's family, through his son David. And then from a descendant of David would come Messiah. And God didn't tell all of those details all at once at the beginning, but nevertheless, the promise was not just for Israel, but for all of the nations of the world, that if they would look by faith like Abraham, who was not a Jew when he established his covenant with God, that like them, those of us who are not Jews 
would also by faith become children of Abraham. And so the implication of verse 16 is that it's not the angels that God is primarily concerned about, although he's been discussing angels for most of the last two chapters in one way or another. He's saying all of this process of redemption and the point of what God is doing for us in Jesus Christ is not with reference to the angels, but with reference to you and me who are descendants of Abraham by faith. And let me, by just by the way, before we get into this a little further, let me just lay another massive truth on you, and this will blow your mind a little bit, so just hang on, okay? When you read verse 16, it, it kind of makes oblique reference to the reality that Jesus' atonement is for specific people. You know, you can read your Bible and you can read, uh, who did Jesus die for? And there's a sense in which you can answer that question, well, Jesus died for the whole world. John 3.16, John 3.17 seem to indicate that Jesus' death is in some sense for all of the people on the earth. That Jesus came Uh, Not that the world will be condemned, but that the world might be saved through him. And that's true. His death is sufficient for all people, for all sin, for all time. And if any will put their trust in him, then they will be saved. However, there's another sense in which the Bible talks about Jesus' death and his atonement on the cross with reference to particular people. That Jesus didn't die for everybody in general. He died for you and for me in specific. That when Christ hung on the cross, it was your face and my face and Mark's face and Brian's face and Clarice's face and Karen's face that he saw as he hung on the cross. And he said, it's for those people, the children of Abraham by faith, that I am hanging here. And it is for their sake that I do not get down, call 12 legions of angels and smite all these people. It is for us. That he went to the cross. Amen? It's for us, the children of Abraham, that he helps. Verse 17, therefore he had to be, make his, be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now that brings us, that phrase brings us to the first big theological word I want you to get your arms around. It's the word incarnation. Uh, I realized a couple of days ago that I use that word sometimes and people might not know what it means because my son Nathan goes like, Dad, what's incarnation? Okay, let me explain. Um, The word incarnation comes from two Latin roots. The prefix in means in, okay? But the, the second word is the word carne, and it means literally meat or flesh, right? Um, 
So if you've ever had chili con carne, it's chili with meat, right? I think I happen to think that if you don't have meat, it's not chili, but whatever. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, it's chili with meat, right? So when we speak about Jesus being incarnate, what we mean is, is that is that he is God in the flesh. He is God with skin on. But he is more than that. So make sure that you understand that it's not just, it's not just God, you know, kind of in a, in a human suit, you know, like, like that alien in uh, Men in Black, right? Wearing Edgar around town, right? It's not like that. That's sometimes how people think of it, that, you know, that Jesus has got a human skin suit that he wears around, and it's underneath the skin is God. But that's not what the Scripture presents. The Scripture says that, it, that Jesus is truly and fully and completely God, or as the Creed says, very God of very God, light from light. Amen? But... But he has a fully human nature. Read the verse here. Like his brothers in every respect. So he had emotions, like you and I have emotions. Uh, When he was betrayed by Judas, it really hurt. Just like you and I would feel really hurt hurt. When he hit adolescence, he really got pimples. True story, okay? He really did. He really got hungry and had to eat. He really had a human mind and a human will and a human nature in every respect, just like you and me. And verse 17 also explains to us why that happened, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, you might not know this, but under the old covenant, when you became the new high priest, they had a very special ceremony for you where you would get ordained. And you had to be, are you ready for this? Stripped naked in front of all the people. That's an exciting day, I'm sure. Right? And the reason for that was that you had to be physically perfect. You had to be a flawless physical specimen. And they had to check to make sure that everything on your body was in the right place and fully functional. Right? And then in addition to that, they would put, after that, they would put on you the robes of the high priest, the, the holy underwear and the ephod and everything else that went with it. Okay? And then you would make a sacrifice, and what you did was you laid your hands on top of this animal, a bull. And you would name in public in front of all of the congregation your sins. Why? So that you would be a merciful and faithful high priest. You had to name all your sins so that you were faithful. And you had to name them all so that you were merciful, so that no one came to you and thought, well, this is the holy man. He's unapproachable. 
<laughs> okay. By the way, I'm not going to name all my sins here publicly, but, but I'll just tell you, if you come to me and you want help in an area of sin, I know how to be a merciful priest because I have been there. Okay? I have been there. Done that, got the shirt. I have been that stupid before, okay? You don't have to worry. What would the pastor think? Well, the pastor will think you're a lot like him. <laughs> okay, reality, that's true, okay? That he might be a merciful high priest. Now, Jesus, of course, had no sin of his own, but he does go through all of the things that we go through in a real way. He experiences the temptation towards sin just like you and I experience it. In fact, he gets up to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's like, you know, I'm not sure about this going to the cross thing. This is starting to seem like a bad idea. And if there's any way for me to escape from this, by the way, Father, I'd like to sign up for that way. And it was such a struggle and an effort for him that he actually is sweating drops of blood out of his face as he prays. And let me ask you something. Who knows what the strength of a temptation really is? The person who has resisted it completely or the person who thought, like Oscar Wilde, I can resist anything but temptation? <laughs> Right? It's just like, well, temptation came along and I had to have some. <laughs> right? Now, Jesus knows the full strength of the temptation that we experience. He knows what it's like to struggle. In fact, if you're in small group, you're going to look at, um, you're going to look at Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation. You're going to look at 1 John, which talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. It's categories of sin. And Jesus experienced all of those temptations, just like you and I do, yet without sin. Why? So that he could be both a faithful priest for us as well as a merciful priest, one who knows what it's like to be you and me from the inside that literally God has walked a couple of miles in you and I's shoes from the inside and knows what we experience. And because of that, and it was essential that he do that so that he could offer the ultimate sacrifice as priest of himself to make propitiation, according to verse 17, before a holy God. Now, Propitiation is one of those $50 theological words that con conveys a lot of meaning, but you need some explanation for what it means. What it means is that Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath against us. Jesus' death satisfies God's wrath against us. Now, you may go, well, wait a minute, I thought God loves us. He does. But God, remember, is perfectly just and holy, and at the same time, perfectly loving. And so the question of, the, of your Bible, and that your New Testament does such a wonderful job answering, 
is not, how can a loving God send people to hell? A lot of people ask that question. That's not the one the Bible's purpose is to answer. The Bible answers this question, how can a just and holy God bring people who are sinners into heaven? Because how can a how can a loving God send people to hell? That's easy. They're sinners, and God's justice demands His wrath against them, though He loves them. The Bible's question that it answers is, how can God remain holy and just and allow people who are sinners into heaven? And the answer is, by sending Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. As a fully human and completely perfect man, Jesus is the completely perfect sacrifice for us. See, an animal can't be a perfect sacrifice for a human being. First of all, animals are not moral agents. And second of all, they have a an entirely different kind of existence than we do. And a sheep is not a human. Sorry, but they're not. And they're not a good substitute for it. And when Jesus hung on the cross, what what the writer of Hebrews is conveying to us is that all of the punishment that we were due as sinners was poured out on Christ leaving no punishment left over for you and me and our sin. And so we are saved when we put our trust in Christ because we recognize, you know, this is sometimes hymn writers are really good at this. There's a great modern hymn called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And it says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The wrath of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. He pours out all of the punishment that you and I are due. Because according to the just law of God, someone must cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? Someone must scream out, I thirst. And it will either be you and me in hell, or it will be Jesus on the cross. And by the grace and mercy and love of God, it has been Jesus on the cross for us. And the wrath of God has been satisfied. And so I no longer stand before God guilty of anything. Because all of the punishment that I was due has been poured out on the Son of God so that I might be welcomed as one of the sons of God. Amen? And that you and I, whether we are man or woman or boy or girl, might receive an inheritance as sons. And the Bible uses that word. I didn't clarify this last week. I want to clarify it this week, okay? In case anybody's confused, the reason the Bible talks about us as sons 
is because in the Bible, the sons are the ones who receive the inheritance from the father. And everything that belongs to him, it becomes the property and the inheritance of those who are his sons. And so all of us, both men and women, boys and girls, are received in Christ as sons because by faith we have received Jesus Christ as the propitiation for our sins. And his blood covers over us. And there is no penalty left. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? This is a great word. You ought to underline every place it shows up in your Bible. That Jesus Christ is the propitiation for my sins. That the wrath of God is poured out on him so that it is not poured out on me. And as a result of all of this, Jesus is now our sympathetic helper. Verse 18. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Remember Jesus' temptation? First thing Satan says, now Jesus is hungry. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. And he says, you know, Jesus, you ought to just turn some of these rocks into bread. And Jesus says, no, I will not use, I will not act out of, out of obedience to the Father. I will not go outside of his will for me to satisfy my desires of my own flesh. And he stands him up on, the, on a high place. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I will give you all of this. I will give you, as Frank Sinatra sang, the world on a string. If you will just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no. I will not receive kingdoms of the world, which, by the way, are already mine in an unrighteous way. And then he stands him on the pinnacle of the temple at the highest point of the wall of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley. And he said, you know, Jesus, what you really ought to do is you ought to reveal to everybody who you are. Show them with a mighty act of power that's undeniable that you are the Son of God. You ought to do it. Throw yourself down, because after all, the angels will catch you. And everybody will worship you. And Jesus says, no. People will have to believe through the works that I do according to the will of the Father. Were those temptations? Yes. How many of you, if you're offered limit, unlimited power and rule over the entire globe, would say, no, not for me. Thanks. No. No. Happy in my little house and picket fence, my car and 2.5 kids. You know, global rule, not for me. Okay. Temptation. Real. How many of you, if you knew God would rescue be tempted to show off a little bit.
How many of you, when tempted to satisfy the desires of your body outside of the will of God, have said, sign me up? I have. A lot of you too. And Jesus knows the full strength of those temptations. He knows how far and how deep they go into our hearts. And because he knows, he is able to help when we are tempted to. Amen? This is a rich passage. There is a ton of truth here. I could probably preach on this the rest of the day. I'm not going to, because you all are going to get hungry <laughs> at some point. I want to go home. But this is a great passage that Jesus Christ has disarmed the devil in our case, that he has taken the wrath of God for us, and therefore we are free from the fear of death. We are free from the rule of Satan. We are free from having to live in slavery to sin. We are free from having to give into our temptations because we have a great high priest who is faithful and merciful and sympathetic, and he has walked in our shoes and understands our struggles, and he died to satisfy God's wrath against us and our sin. And all that means that by his death that he has freed you and me from all of our ultimate fears. And the only question that we have to answer is, if I am free from all of my fears, do I then live in a fearless way? If this is true of me, do I live fearlessly? To live fearlessly doesn't mean that we all decide to go take up an extreme sport, you know. We don't have to go get squirrel suits, you know, uh, jump off a cliff somewhere and uh, hope not to have our ankles go through our ears, right? Uh, We don't have to, uh, you know, take up, you know, hella skiing or any of that kind of stuff, right? We don't have to do that just because we're free from the fear of death, doesn't mean being foolish. What it does mean is that because I am freed from fear in Christ, that I am set free to really live for the first time. I can really live. Death does not need to loom over our lives with the same kind of dark foreboding that other people have. Why? Because it is not judgment that is awaiting me. It's glory. It's glory. Our sins were laid bare on Christ's shoulders and they were fully paid there. So I don't need to worry about what is on the other side of the curtain. A lot of people think that... that You know, Judgment Day is kind of like the old show, Let's Make a Deal, right? And you kind of, you come to the big deal of the day, you got curtain number one, curtain number two, curtain number three. And they're coming to judgment hoping that on the other side of the curtain is a new car and not a goat 
or something worse. But for us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, to borrow a phrase from John Piper, title of a great book, by the way, there is only future grace awaiting us. Future grace. Not judgment, not death, not destruction. And so we don't have to live as if this is our only trip around the carousel, so we got to grab the brass ring. Because it's not. We will live for eternity in glory with Christ. And we will live transformed by the grace of God in the presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit's power in the house of our Father forever and ever and ever. And because we are set free from all of that stuff, it means that I can really live my life not for myself and and the satisfaction of my own pleasures and desires and lusts and whatever else, but that I can actually lay my life down because this is not the only one I've got. Amen? I can live in sacrificial service to other people and in actual love for them because I don't have to think constantly about what's in it.